Happy Sunday, West Village family. How's it going out there in internet land? Uh, my name is Chris, uh, one of the leaders here at West Village. Great to have you joining us, uh, especially if you're new, want to welcome you. Uh, if you're watching online for the first time, uh, we do have a growing online audience. Uh, we have people from all over the place, from Nanaimo to Calgary to Texas to India tuning in with us. So we're super excited to have you. I uh, want to invite you to connect beyond just uh, being a passive watcher, but actually be a, an active participant in the life of our church and a part of the family. Uh, all you have to do is text your name to the number below and one of our staff will follow up with you. Uh, we're in a series on the book of Esther. We're going verse by verse through the book of Esther. So if you have a Bible, you can pull it out now, go to Esther chapter five, uh, or you can download a Bible app for your phone and follow along in there. And as you turn there, I want to just start, kind of set this up by, by asking you a question, just kind of prime the pump a little bit here uh, and get, get some thoughts going in your mind. I want you to imagine with me for a second that uh, you're at a party. You're, you're at a party or you're at some kind of social gathering. I know that's hard to believe in this era, but you're actually with other human beings besides the people in your house. Uh, and there's a lot of people there that you don't know. Again, strange concept in, in times like these. And you are trying to get to know people. You're trying to introduce yourself to someone. You're trying to get to know someone else. You're going to walk up to them. Uh, and again, all of these are foreign, and maybe these are things we're not going to do anymore, but you're going to stick your hand out, you're going to shake someone's hand, introduce yourself, tell them your name, and then what are you going to talk about? Uh, usually what ends up happening in a situation like that is you will ask the person, what do you do for work? What are your hobbies? Tell me about your family. Uh, and then you in turn will tell them similar things. Uh, and really what we're trying to do in that kind of brief moment is communicate who we are who we are as a person. We're trying to learn about the person that we're meeting, who they are. Uh, this is what we call our identity. Uh, psychological nomenclature calls this like your self-image or your self-esteem. Uh, but what we're really trying to communicate is the, the essence of who we are. Uh, now, when we talk about this idea of identity, that's kind of the biblical or theological language, uh, really there's two ways that we can understand our identity. One of the ways is that our identity is something that is earned. So our identity is predicated on what we do, what we do for a job, what we do for fun. Again, our family, some of the, the things that make up who we are, those form our identity. But that's an identity that is, that is earned, that you have to produce to achieve. But there's another way to understand this concept of identity. And it's an identity that is given. It's, it's granted to you. It's just, it's just given to you. It's, it's who you are, not because of what you do, but it just is. Uh, and, and these are, are very biblical concepts. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of the story of God, Genesis chapters uh, one through three, I think, in my, in my personal humble opinion, uh, this aspect or this part of the story of God actually does one of the most uh, fantastic jobs of unpacking for us the totality of what it means to be human. Like the lived human experience, I think, can, in a very real way, can be summed up in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Better than any scientific experiment, better than any other philosophical or religious idea, uh, better than any textbook could describe it for us. The book of Genesis kind of tells the story of the creation of the universe, the cosmos, and humanity. And in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, we get this picture of what I would describe as a, as an identity that is given. 
So, so we get this picture of God. He creates the cosmos. He creates uh, the universe. He creates the world. He puts Adam and Eve in it. And then what he does is he declares over Adam and Eve that they are very good. Now, now what's interesting about his declaration over them that they are very good is that he does this completely independent of anything that they say or do. Uh, they are deemed very good based on the creative work of God and the declarative word of God over them. They don't have to do anything to earn it. They don't have to strive for it. They don't have to achieve for it. They don't have to produce because of it. There's all sorts of things that they do because of their identity, because they've been declared very good by God. But there's nothing that they have to do to earn it. But if you fast forward, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, then you come to Genesis chapter 3, and we get introduced to a new character in the story of God. And Satan comes in the form of a serpent. And he comes to Adam and Eve. And he tempts them. And, and all of us, whether you're new to church or not, are familiar with this story. Uh, when we think of Genesis chapter 3 and we think of Adam and Eve and we think of the serpent, we think of Adam and Eve as, as eating a, an apple or, or eating fruit, forbidden fruit, if you will. And while that's definitely the, the physicality of what's happening in Genesis chapter 3, uh, it doesn't do justice to what's actually occurring in that moment. There's, there's deeper spiritual reality that is happening as Adam and Eve choose to uh, heed the temptation of the serpent, of Satan. In that moment, what is happening is Adam and Eve are choosing something other than God to satisfy them. In other words, they look at the, the given identity the, the, the granted identity of God, this idea that they are very good, that, that God just declares over them because he is good and he declares it and they don't do anything to earn it. They don't do anything to strive for it. They look at it and they say, hmm, God, thank you so much for that. But we actually think there's something else out there that will make us happy, that will make us content. We need to do something. Follow me here. We need to do something to make ourselves into something. What you have done, your word, very good, your, your work, your, your creative work is not sufficient. It's not good enough for us. We, we need something else. We need to do something to make ourselves into something. In other words, we have to earn our identity. So on one hand, we have earned identity, which is, you know, what we would say is a human doing. Uh, and we have a given or granted or gifted identity, which is what we would describe as a human being. As we come to Esther chapter 5, we're going to do a bit of a character sketch here on, on two characters who we've met so far in the story. One is Esther and the other one is a character named Haman. And this is going to be a case study on these two ideas of identity. So again, if you have your Bibles, Esther chapter 5, picking up in verse 1, here's what the writer records for us in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. So let's just stop there for a second. Let me kind of give you a little bit of the backstory, especially if you're new. It's helpful to understand who these characters are and kind of what's going on. Uh, so in the book of Esther, we have two main characters, Esther and Mordecai, both who are a Jewish in ancestry. But at this point, they're living in the nation of Persia. And in a real sense, they're sort of like what we would describe as cultural Christians. They haven't fully given themselves over to the God of the Bible. They live in the nation of Persia, and they kind of like it. They like what the empire has to offer them. In other words, they have their, uh, each of their feet planted in you know, two different worlds. On one hand, they're the people of God. On the other hand, they're enjoying all that the, uh, the empire affords to them. 
And these two characters end up through a whole bunch of circumstances with roles in the palace, in, in King Xerxes' palace, in his kingdom. We have uh, Esther, who becomes the queen. We have Mordecai, who works at the king's gate. Uh, Mordecai and a man named Haman end up having a conflict. Uh, Haman gets elevated to a high, high status within Xerxes' kingdom, and he really loves power, as we'll see this morning. And he goes around, and he loves his notoriety, and he loves to be, uh, you know, he, lo- he loves to be uh, congratulated for his uh, greatness. And he comes to Mordecai, and he says, "Mordecai, I want you to bow down to me." Mordecai refuses. Haman gets upset. But Haman doesn't just get upset with Mordecai. He actually gets upset with all of the people that Mordecai belonged to, all the Jewish people who live in the nation of Persia. At that time, it's about 15 million people. And Haman and Xerxes get together and they issue an edict declaring that they are going to kill all of God's people that live in the nation of Persia. Uh, Well, this produces within the story, but also specifically within Esther and Mordecai, this need to make a decision. What are, what are we going to do? And as we saw last week, Mordecai gets to this place where he, he moves from being afraid to identify with the people of God uh, to pleading with Esther on the, their behalf to have them saved. And Esther, through a series of trials and tribulations on her own, comes to this place where she agrees that she will go before the king and plead the case of the people of God. And so Esther chapter 5 is the beginning of the plot starting to unfold, of Esther starting to make her move to see the people of God rescued and redeemed. So verse 1, the third day Esther put on her royal robe and she stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. Then verse 2 goes on and says the king was sitting in his royal throne. The king was King Xerxes was always sitting on his throne. He loved his throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out, uh, held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So what's happening here is Esther comes in before the king. Uh, and this time, King Xerxes, ruler of Persia, functionally at this point, he's the ruler of the known world. The Persian Empire was uh, vast in its scope and influence and power. And, and Xerxes is seated on the throne in the palace, in the capital city of the nation of Persia. You could not come into the king's presence without his request. If you were to come into his presence without his requ- uh, without him uh, beckoning you or calling you or summoning you, you risked your own death. In fact, that's where Esther ended in chapter four. She said, I'll go and if I die, I die. I'm willing to put my life on the line. And what would happen is you would come into the king's presence. He was surrounded by, uh, by, by his army or by a number of soldiers. And he had this golden scepter that he would hold up in the air. And if you came into his presence, he would hold it up. And if he reached it out, you were, uh, your life was spared. If he, if he kept it up in the air, then his, his, uh, his soldiers would come and they would have you beheaded. Kids, if you're out there, Father's Day gift. If you're watching this, my children, Father Day's, com- Father's Day's coming. I would love a golden scepter. Sounds like such a cool thing to have. You know, come. Uh, sorry, kids. Sorry. Anyway, so this is what happens. Esther comes into the presence of the king. He spares her life, goes on. Look at what she says next. Look, look what happens next, rather. Verse 3, then the king asked, what is it? What is it, 
Esther that you want. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom will be given to you. So Esther comes into the king's presence. He says, what do you want? I'm willing to give you anything you want, even up to half the kingdom. This is sort of a, you know, a bit of an expression that was used often by kings. You even see this in the New Testament when Herodias comes to King Herod because she wants John the Baptist killed and King Herod, who's in front of all of his guests, just like King Xerxes was often in front of all of his guests and loved uh, to be celebrated for his wealth and splendor, says, I'll give you half of my kingdom. And that's what's happening here, right? And, and think about this with Xerxes. We've seen this time and time again where, where he often makes horrible decisions. And the reason he makes these horrible decisions is because he desperately wants people to think well of him. And so, again, here, Xerxes is a great example of an, of an earned identity, right? He's trying to do something to make himself into something. He's trying to prove himself. He doesn't want to look foolish. And so he's, he's willing to put on display the splendor of his kingdom and take a risk to, you know, look generous and look like he has so much to offer here uh, in, in the sight of all the people just because he wants people to think well of him. It goes on. Next verse. Here's what Esther says. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. So Esther says, I've got a banquet prepared and I want both you Xerxes and Haman to come to this banquet. Now I said this a number of weeks ago, but banquet is a massive theme through the story of Esther. Whenever there's a banquet, there's something significant that is about to happen. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. Uh, so the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, verse 7, uh, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for them. And then I, and then I will answer the king's question. So Esther invites Haman and Xerxes to the banquet. She gets all dolled up. She gets them, uh, you know, she gets the wine out. They get drinking wine. They're, they're a little bit, you know, uh, social lubricant happening. They're happy. And Esther says, you know, she, she's kind of, her plan is unhatching here, right? She's kind of buttering them up. She says, well, actually, I've just called you here because I want to tell you that I'm going to have another party. And it's at that party where I'm really going to tell you what's going on. Now, if you just stop for a second here and take, take a, a look, take a step back and take a look at the character of Esther, we, we see this massive transformation that is taking place in her. If you go back to the first four chapters of the book of Esther, so far what we've seen in her life is that she's been a very passive character. Uh, she, she, uh, up to this point, up till just before this point rather, in chapter four, she was unwilling to, you know, identify as one of God's people. She hid her ethnicity. She hid her religious beliefs. Uh, she was passive in the sense that she was willing to allow Mordecai to pimp her out to King Xerxes. She allowed herself to participate in his ridiculous reality show, The Bachelor Persia. Uh, she, she's been passive even in her willingness to go to King Xerxes to plead on behalf of the people of God. Even to come to this point, it required, uh, it required Mordecai to functionally threaten her life in order to do it. She, she hasn't really been a willing participant in this story. She's more been the type of person who's allowed things to happen to her. But, but here, all of a sudden, what we see is we see that, that Esther is, is starting to take an active role in the story. And in fact, what we're going to see from this point forward is Esther functionally becomes the main human character in this story. 
Uh, and the question that we should ask as we c- kind of get to this place in Esther's character development is, is what is it? What is it that caused her to be changed and transformed in such a way that she went from being so, so passive to being active? But, but not just active in the sense of doing things, active in the sense of she's now in pursuit of the will of God. What's happened? Here's what's happened. She's received a new identity. Uh, we've already talked about this, but, but up to this point, prior to this point, I should say, uh, Esther, in a very real way, was unsure of who she was. If you go back to Esther chapter 2, there's the two names for Esther, Hadassah and Esther, her Hebrew name and her Persian name. And there was this crisis of conflict that existed within her. Who am I? Who do I belong to? Do I belong to Persia or do I belong to the people of God? Well, in Esther chapter 4, as Mordecai comes to Esther and she's faced with this crisis. This produces in Esther this decision that she has to make. Who am I? At the very core of my being, who am I? And what we're seeing here is that Esther has made a decision to be marked by the people of God, the covenant people of God. And covenant is a big word that gets used a lot throughout the story of God, throughout the entirety of the Bible. But essentially it is this, it is God's promise to love his people regardless of what they do. In other words, it's a given identity. Esther has come to this place where she is willing to receive, receive a new identity that has been given to her by God. Just like Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where God comes to Adam and Eve and says, you are very good because of my word and my work. What made the people of God in right standing with God and what made them have this earned identity was just the goodness and grace of God himself. He, he offers it to Esther. He grants it to her. He gives it to her. And so now Esther, she, she, she's able to live out of this place where she she has experienced the fullness of the love of God. And so she's able to move from being this passive character to this active character. She's no longer defined by the things that have happened to her. She's no longer defined by the mistakes that she's made. She's no longer defined by the fact that she was uh, adopted, that both of her parents had died and that she'd been uh, adopted by Mordecai. These things help us understand who Esther is, but they don't define her. She's no longer defined by her willingness to participate in Xerxes' reality show. She's no longer defined by her sins, by her transgressions, by her unwillingness to be marked by the people of God. Those things, again, they help us understand who Esther is, but they no longer define who she is. In other words, Esther has now received the full measure of the love of God, and she is able to work from that place instead of working to try to achieve something. Uh, in a, a book C.S. Lewis wrote, one of the first books that he wrote, uh, and it's, it's actually, I think this is the first book that he wrote on Christianity. It's called The Pilgrim's Regress. It's sort of a, an updated version of John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. And, and it's sort of an allegorical account of C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity. Uh, and in there, C.S. Lewis unpacks this character by the name of John. And John is this character who has this, this intense desire uh, it's, it's, it's actually described by Lewis in the book, The Pilgrim's Regress, with a, a capital D desire. There's this longing in John's heart for, 
for something. He doesn't know what it is, but he has these visions and he has these dreams that are so vivid and so real of an island. And he goes to this island in his dreams and he's in pursuit of satisfying this capital D desire that exists in his heart. And this island is full of, it's it's full of all sorts of things. Uh, It's full of philosophical ideas, religious ideas, uh, scientific ideas. It's full of, uh, you know, like worldly or hedonistic pleasures like women and, and drink and, and, and all kinds of debaucherous experiences. And, and John travels over this entire island pursuing every single possible way that he can think of to satisfy this capital D desire that he has in his heart. But he comes to this place where he realizes it's kind of this moment of realization that he has, not that dissimilar to the one that Esther has in chapter four of this book, where he, where he realizes it's not the island that he's looking for. He's looking for what C.S. Lewis calls the landlord, someone who will actually come up and take residence inside of his heart. Uh, and Lewis was quite a philosopher, and he's kind of hearkening back to uh, Blaise Pascal, who was this 17th century philosopher who, who described the human heart as an abyss, this big, empty void that needed to be filled with something. And the whole point that Lewis is trying to make in his book, The Pilgrim's Regress, is that until you come to this place where you realize that There's not an idea, there's not a religious performance you can do, there's not an idea you can believe, a concept you can, uh, that you can encounter, an experience that you can have that will, will satisfy you. You're gonna continue to strive, you're gonna continue to work, you're gonna continue to, to try and find something to satisfy this capital D desire that you have in your heart. But until you come to this place where you realize that God and God alone is the one who can satisfy you, you're not gonna be content. I mean, if you just take a look at, at our lives as we know them, I mean, this, this in a very real way explains the, the reality that we live in. Just think about it. We buy cars, we buy houses, we accrue debt, we pursue relationships. Some of us, you know, we, we, we just, like for me, for example, one of the things I, I just desperately long for is to prove myself. And so I work hard to try and prove myself. Some of us long to be loved, and so what do we do? We bounce from relationship to relationship to relationship, thinking that this next one, he's going to be the one that satisfies me, or she's going to be the one that satisfies me. And our lives become this this gigantic pursuit to try and fill what Blaise Pascal calls the abyss, what C.S. Lewis calls the capital D desire. And we can't. No matter how hard we look, no matter how far we search, no matter how long we, you know, we, 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 we hike the proverbial island, if you will, we can't find it. If you think back to the example I used at the beginning of this message, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what are we longing for? We're longing for Eden. If you think back to that part of the story, what do we see? We see that Adam and Eve lived out of this granted or given identity. God declares them very good by his word and his work. And what was the fruit of that? It was, it was amazing. They had relationship with each other that was perfect. They had relationship with others that was perfect. They had relationship with the world that was perfect. They had relationship with God that was perfect. It was what they wanted. It was what they, they needed. It was what we longed for. We all want Eden. But the problem for us, the problem in our world is that we want Eden, but we want it without God. 
And the point that Lewis is making in the Pilgrim's Regress and what we see here in Esther's story, that it wasn't until she got to this place where she was willing to step out of the nation of Persia and into her God-given identity as the covenant people of God. It wasn't until she realized that she couldn't do anything to earn God's love, but he just gives it to her because he and he alone is good. That she finally was able to realize who she truly is. Some of you are desperately looking and searching and toiling and striving to figure out who you are, to find Eden. And it's not Eden you need, it's, it's Jesus. He, he's the one you're looking for. He's the, he's the one who can offer you himself. He doesn't ask you to lay your life down. He lays his, down, his life down for you. He doesn't ask you to prove yourself. He goes to the cross and does it for you. He proves that he is faithful. He is true. He is right. And he loves you. He cares about you. He's gracious. He's kind. And then he grants you his righteousness, his goodness, his love, his grace. And all we have to do is receive it as a gift. Some of you just need to stop working. You need to stop running. You need to stop running from, from relationship to relationship, from thing to thing, from experience to experience, from idea to idea. You just need to stop and you just need to receive. You just need to receive. Just like Esther came to this place where she said, okay, okay, finally I relent. I will receive. Some of us just need to stop and receive Jesus. Story goes on. That's Esther's story. We also run into a character named Haman. So the story kind of makes a hard right. Here's what happens. Speaking up in verse 9, Haman went out that day right after this banquet that Esther had with him and Xerxes, and he was happy and he was in high spirit. So Haman comes out of the banquet and he's just like, he's on cloud nine. He's bawling. He thinks this is great, right? This is fueling everything, all the bad parts of Haman, right? He loves power. He loves notoriety. He loves uh, being thought well of. And what happened? He was at a private party with Xerxes, the king, and Esther, the queen. And he's been told that he's going to go to another one, another banquet where he's going to be held in high esteem. So he thinks life is great. He's got everything that he wants. And then look at what happens. It says this, but when he saw Mordecai. So Haman sees Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence. He was filled with rage against Mordecai. So, so what happens, right? He comes out, he's excited, he's got everything he could want and more. He sees Mordecai, and what happens? Mordecai refuses to bow, he refuses to pay any honor to Haman whatsoever, and Haman is filled with rage. Story goes on, verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. And it says this, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person that Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she uh, and she invited me along with the king tomorrow. So, so Haman has this experience. He sees Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow. He's upset. So what does he do? He kind of throws a party, a little bit of a party, invites his friends over, uh, invites uh, his wife. They get together. And this is kind of how the party goes. 
uh, Haman says, I'm going to tell you how awesome I am. And what I'd like you to do is tell me how awesome I am so that we can celebrate my awesomeness. Sounds like a fun guy to hang out with, hey? So that's what happens. And then look at this, verse 13. Now remember, Haman's got everything he wants. He's gotten power. He's gotten notoriety. Apart from the king, he, he is in the highest place or one of the highest places in the kingdom. Look at what it says, verse 13. But this gave me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. What's more? Uh, what's Haman saying here? It's not enough. It's not enough. I need, I need more. He, he's, he's achieved, he's received, he's been given everything, but it's not enough. He needs something else. I don't know if you've ever been to Disneyland with your kids. They say Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. They're liars. It is not the happiest place on earth. It is the worst place on earth, okay? Because here's what happens. You, you take your kids to Disneyland, and, and I've got like, I don't know, I got like 13 kids. I don't know. I can't keep track of them all. And we go to Disneyland and it's costing you like thousands of dollars a day at Disneyland. You're all wearing the matching shirts. You got the Mickey ears that you're never going to wear any of this stuff anywhere else because people are going to make fun of you for wearing it. But you're wearing it there. It's okay to wear it there. And you're walking around and kilometers of walking and lines and heat. And, you know, if you're like me, you're just doing the math. You're like, oh my gosh, like I just spent... I'm, I'm paying $8 a minute to breathe. Like, this, is, this isn't good. And then it happens. Your kid sees one of the concession stands. It's dinner time. What do you want for dinner, Johnny? I want a funnel cake, Dad. Johnny, you can't have a funnel cake, but I want a funnel cake, Dad. Johnny, you, you can't have a funnel cake. You got to have, like, something healthy, like a hamburger, french fries, or a Coke. You know, like, you can't have a funnel cake for dinner. We got to eat, you know, you got to put something nutritious in your body. Ketchup, french fries, that's nutritious, Johnny. Have, have french fries. No, Dad, I want a funnel cake. Can't have a funnel cake, and he just loses his mind. I hate you. I hate this place. This is the worst vacation ever. And your head just explodes because you're thinking to yourself, you ungrateful little kid. I've given you everything, and you need a funnel cake too? This is Haman. He's having a functional adult temper tantrum where he's been given everything and he still wants his funnel cake. And look at what happens next. Verse 14. He's got the wrong people around him. This isn't, this doesn't have anything to do with the sermon. But let me just say this. You, you need to have people around you who are not going to always tell you how awesome you are. Right? There's, there's an old proverb that says, wounds from a friend are better than kisses from an enemy. Okay, but look at what happens next. Verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it and then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. And this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. Uh, so what do his friends suggest? What does his wife suggest? They said, you know what? You need to set up a pole. This is, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but this is actually a picture of crucifixion. It literally means to be hung by a tree. The Persians were the ones who introduced the idea of crucifixion. They invented it. The Romans who crucified Jesus were the ones who perfected it. And they said, you should make it high, 50 cubits, 75 feet, and hang Mordecai 
high so everyone can see him. And Haman hears this and he thinks, this is a great idea. I've been, I've been shamed publicly. I want to be honored publicly. I want everybody to know. I want everyone to know you don't mess with Haman. I'm a big deal. I'm important. I matter. Crazy story. Crazy story. I mean, just think of the contrast between Haman and Esther. Right? On one hand, we have Esther who's had, who has nothing. She's adopted. She's, she's orphaned. She, she doesn't have power and prestige. You know, she's a female, which at this time was, was not something that uh, was well thought of. It wasn't like she had influence in the palace. And yet there's this humble confidence to her as she comes to this place where she recognizes that she belongs to the covenant community of God. And then on the other hand, we have Haman. He has everything he could want and more. He has status, he has power, he has wealth, he has prestige. He's got the corner office, big window, six-figure paycheck, rolls in in a beamer. He's got everything. He's got the pretty wife, the big house, the nice view, all of it. And it's not enough. He needs his funnel cake. He, he, he needs something else. He, he needs more I mean, this is functionally, what we're seeing here is functionally Genesis chapter 3, right? Think back to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God had given them everything. They had, they had everything. They had God himself dwelling with them. And then Genesis chapter 3 happens, and, and what do they say? We want our funnel cake. Give me a funnel cake. It wasn't even a funnel cake. It was an apple. Like, come on. Like, at least a funnel. And Haman is Genesis chapter 3. This is Genesis chapter 3 lived out. This is what Genesis chapter 3 looks like. When you feel like you have to earn something, when you feel like you have to strive for something, when you feel like you have to make yourself into something by doing something, you, you never actually get to where you think you need to be because there's always more to be had. And, and Haman is in this place where he's trying to make himself into something by doing something, but it's never enough. One of the early church fathers, St. Augustine, he came up with this concept that he, he called disordered loves. And uh, him, him and another early church father by the name of Cicero were having this conversation where Cicero was, you know, this is what they did back in the day. They just sat around and talked about stuff. So they're just sitting around pontificating about things. And, and Cicero is like, oh, you know what I can't figure out, Augustine, is everyone wakes up in the morning and they really, really, really want to be happy. Like nobody wakes up and says, today I want to have a poopy day. Everyone wakes up and says, I'm going to do whatever I can to have a good day, to be happy. He said, yet I look around, and what I see when I look at people is that, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, they're not content. There's a real sense of underlying misery, Cicero said. And he asked Augustine, how do you explain this? And Augustine thought about it for a little while. And he came up with this concept of disordered loves, where he said, similar to what Lewis was saying in The Pilgrim's Regress, similar to what Blaise Pascal was saying with the abyss in the human heart, he said that there's one primal love that every single person needs satisfied in their life. And if they don't get that love satisfied, then what they're going to continue to try and do is satisfy that deep longing they have in their heart to know that they're loved, to feel loved, to be loved with what he calls lesser loves. 
And so the disordered loves is that you start to take something that was never intended to satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart and you try and, you try and get it to satisfy your heart. Uh, this is why when like a, a married couple come together, especially a young married couple, and I'm doing their pre-marriage counseling, they have what I call Jerry Maguire syndrome, right? They're sitting there in my living room and me and Kelly are doing marriage counseling with them and they're all like happy and bouncy and looking at each other and smiling. We love each other so much. Everyone's so amazing, right? This is Jerry Maguire syndrome, like you complete me. And they can't imagine a day where they're going to have a fight, where there's going to, you know, something bad is going to happen. And we're just, me and Kelly are kind of like chuckling under our breath because we know. Oh, we know that this is not how it's going to be because what's happening in that moment, this idea, this Jerry Maguire idea of you complete me is you're asking your spouse to be Jesus for you when they could never do that. They can never satisfy all your hopes and your dreams and your longings. They're going to, they're going to disappoint you. And what ends up happening oftentimes in the marriage relationship, and I would contend that this is probably the source of just about every single marriage fight or strife that ever happens, is one spouse is asking the other spouse to be Jesus for them, and the other spouse gets crushed under the weight of trying to be their functional savior, and they can't do it, and so they're crushed under the weight, and then the other spouse is completely destroyed and disheveled in despair because they couldn't be Jesus. Who can be Jesus? Jesus. And when you know the love of Jesus, like Esther knows it, when you know his, his word and his work washed over you, his given identity that you are completely and fully loved, now you can look at your spouse and you can love them, not because you need them to love you back, but just because. You don't need them to be Jesus because you already have Jesus. You don't need them to be perfect because you already have Jesus' perfection. You don't need them to always get it right because Jesus always got it right. And Augustine's point is that until that place of, of deep love is satisfied, we will never be satisfied. We will always continue to strive to find it because we need it. We, we desperately need it. Some of you are desperate to be loved. You're desperate to be loved. You long to be perfectly known and perfectly loved. Jesus is the only one who can offer us that. He's the only one who can look straight at us, see the darkest places of our hearts, see just like we see with Esther. I mean, it makes sense why Esther was so transformed because she knew. She knew that she hadn't lived up to God's expectation. She knew that she'd been hiding her faith. She knew that she was passive. She knew that she broke the rules. She, she didn't do all the good churchy stuff. She wasn't that gal. And yet Jesus looked at her. And he said, I see all the mess, I see all the brokenness, and I still love you. I still love you. And until we experience that, to be fully known and fully loved, we're going to strive. We're going to look. We're going to earn, try and earn. Uh, my kids and, and me are watching right now. There's this documentary that's actually just completed Last Sunday, it came, the final two episodes were released. It's called The Last Dance. And I've been educating my children on 90s hip hop and 90s basketball and 90s culture. And it's a docu-series docu on, on the 97, 98 Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan. Everybody knows Michael Jordan, right? This guy transcended beyond sports. Like he's, he's a cultural icon. I mean, the guy, you know, he's on the Mount Rushmore of basketball players. He won six championships three times or two times rather three peated uh, I mean he has billions and billions and billions of dollars I mean they called him the black Jesus 
Like, you know you've arrived when, when your nickname is the Black Jesus. I wish somebody would call me the Black Jesus. That'd be so cool. But it's just an amazing story. This guy who worked so hard, he strived so hard. He, he, was, he was like almost psychotic in how competitive he was. In fact, his, his coach, Phil Jackson, you know, he said, uh, what's the difference between Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant? Kobe Bryant, also a great basketball player, but not as great as Michael Jordan, because some of you probably never heard of him. You're like, why is this guy talking about basketball? I got a point. I'm getting there. Just hang with me. He said, here's the difference between Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. Both of them are going to beat you. They're going to do whatever they can to beat you. But Michael Jordan's going to beat you to the car after. Like he was just crazy competitive, intense, almost, again, almost psychotic. And, and his story was like, I mean, it was, it was like fairy tale Hollywood-esque. So the, the last game that Michael Jordan played before he retired and then came back again, but we pretend that didn't happen, the whole Washington Wizards thing, that was a debacle. Anyway, story ends like this. John Stockton has the ball at the top. Jo- Jeff Hornacek in the corner. Michael Jordan guarding Jeff Hornacek. Jeff Hornacek comes across the lane, sets a little flash screen for Carl Malone. Carl Malone comes to the post. John Stockton playing for the Utah Jazz. This is game six in the NBA Finals. At this point, the Utah Jazz are up by one point. There's about 30 seconds left in the game. John Stockton throws the ball into Carl Malone. Now, Jeff Hornacek was supposed to cut to the corner. Michael Jordan was supposed to follow him. He doesn't. He stops, sneaks back around swipes the ball from Carl Malone, steals it, dribbles the ball at the floor, no timeout called. He's in Utah Jazz Stadium, thousands of people cheering against him, wanting him to miss, pulls the ball up to the top of the key, dribble, 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 clock runs down to 16 seconds, two dribbles hard to the right, pulls it back, crosses over. Byron Russell, who's guarding him. Now, there's some dispute here about whether he pushed off or not. doesn't matter. Byron Russell goes flying. Michael Jordan pulls up, hits the shot. Five seconds left, goes in. That's it. It's like the top of Mount Everest. Bulls go on to win the game. You could not write a better end to the story. And the documentary ends with the interviewer asking Michael Jordan today, do you have any regrets? And Michael Jordan's got this look in his face that he wishes he would have won more, achieved more, done more. Wasn't satisfied. It's Haman. This is Genesis chapter 3. This is, I've achieved everything that the human being could imagine achieving, and it's still not enough. Because until you find Jesus, you will never be satisfied. The longing in your heart, it will still be there. And in this passage of scripture, in Esther chapter 5, we get this beautiful picture of God's grace and his love and his mercy. If you go back to Esther chapter 5 verse 1, it says that on the third day, Esther put on her royal robe. The third day is this, this great image that we have all through the story of God that it was the third day that God always rescued and redeemed his people. 
a theme that we see all through it in the life of Abraham, in the life of Jacob, we see in the life of Jonah, and of course we see it in the life of Jesus. That it was on the third day that he rose from the grave. But what we see here in Esther's story is this beautiful picture of God's grace where he actually, like, just think about this with me for a second. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. For If you're out there listening to this and you're broken, you know you're a hot mess. This is beautiful. He takes the story of Esther, her brokenness, and he uses it and he redeems it for his glory. She was the perfect person to advocate on behalf of the people of God. She was both Persian royalty and Jewish ancestry. She was Persian royalty because she lived in rebellion to God. She, she refused to acknowledge him for so much of her life. She refused to follow him, to obey him. And yet God comes into her story and he uses her brokenness so that she can actually sit in front of King Xerxes. But because of her Jewish ancestry, she was willing to go to Xerxes on behalf of the people of God. She was the perfect mediator. Friends, just like Jesus is our perfect mediator. He came in the flesh. He took on flesh to come for me and you to, to rescue and redeem us. He looks at us. He knows the brokenness that we've experienced because he hasn't experienced sin, but he's experienced temptation and he sees he sees all of our wrong, just like he does for Esther. He sees all of our sin. He sees all of our mistakes. He sees, sees all of the things that we wish we would have done differently. And he doesn't just discard us or, or, or wash us away, but he actually uses our brokenness. He redeems it and he becomes flesh, enters into the story. But yet he was perfectly God. And just as Esther mediates between the people of God and King Xerxes, so too does Jesus mediate between God the Father and us. He comes to us and he says, I know you're broken. I know you've made mistakes. And I know. I know. But I love you. I love you. Don't you long for that? Don't you long to know what it feels like to be loved like that? Friends, it's available. Jesus is calling you to come to him. Jesus is beckoning you to come to him. If you're hearing this right now, it's not an accident. It's because Jesus wants you. He wants you. Let me pray for us. God, you are so good. You are so kind. You are so gracious. You are so merciful. Lord, I just pray that you would speak into our hearts, that we would sense your spirit calling us, wooing us, that every other pursuit that we go down is vain. We don't have to work. We don't have to try. We don't have to strive. We just have to receive. And so I just pray right now in this moment that we would receive. We would receive your love and your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen, amen.